Hello everyone, welcome to the TeamCast. I'm Claire Murphy, Director of Story at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The TeamCast is a show where Dr. Preston Klein, Harry Moffat, Janice Jackson, Coleman Ruiz and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of 4 to 12 people who are indigenously trained and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you are on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the team cast. On today's team cast, I talk with Dr. Simon Martin and Nurse Teresa Griffiths about the call to medicine. We talk about the silence in the medical community and what it means to speak up. We talk about perception and the realities of working in the medical world. What do you do in a crisis when there isn't time? How does ritual and loss affect us? How do we cope with responsibility and the many different ways in which we can tell our stories? I loved this conversation and I hope you'll enjoy it too. So welcome everybody. It's good to see you all. Today I have the great pleasure for my very first podcast in the world of podcasting as Director of Story at Mission Critical Team Institute. I have the great pleasure of interviewing two friends who come from the medical world. So today I am speaking with Dr. Simon Martin, who is a retired GP. GP is what we say here in the UK or family doctor, you might call it over in the States who worked for many years in a busy market town general practice, community hospital and minor injuries unit. Now, he also worked in rural New Zealand, in urban Australia and in Alberta, Canada during the tar sands mining oil boom. I would say he became something of a magnet for people and patients in his community dealing with high levels of stress and also was consulted a lot around hospice and palliative care. And he was a GP with an interest in the application of storytelling in medicine. And now, retired apparently, he tells stories and retains an interest in the world of medicine and the health and well-being of his colleagues. So, Dr. Simon Martin, you are very welcome. Thank you very much, Claire. Lovely introduction. Thank you very much. And joining us today is Teresa Griffiths, CBE. Now, Teresa, you joined the RAF as a nursing officer in 1993 and you left yesterday after 27 years and three months you joined as a flying officer and you left as a group captain and you deployed all over the world from Kosovo to Sierra Leone to Karachi Baghdad Afghanistan and many more places now you specialized in medical planning at the operational level for the Ministry of Defense and responsible for writing medical plans of closing Iraq upscaling Afghanistan closing the Balkans RAF medical planning lead for the Ebola crisis in 2013 and obviously a lot more than that we're not going to read your entire 27 years you've done a lot but I think it's fair to say that you broke a lot of glass ceilings so you were the first nurse to command the RAF's high readiness squadron uh, be a medical planner at our at the operational HQ and command the defense medical rehabilitation center 
And I don't mean to brag, but you have also been awarded a number of honours for leadership. I just want to mention a couple of them and we can explain to the uh, people listening who aren't English what those are. So you've been awarded the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Service in the Iraq War, the Associate Royal Red Cross, which is a nursing MBE, and an OBE and CBE for Birmingham and Headley Court, which are a lot of very important letters because it is the... How, how do you describe an OBE or a CBE to someone not from England? It's a national honour um, awarded by the Queen. That's a pretty good summation, isn't it? And so, Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Those lovely words. So here on the Teamcast, we discuss a lot of different aspects of life on mission critical teams. And today we're here to talk about the power of communication and of telling our own stories. And we've been sharing articles and ideas about this in conversation over the past couple of years between us all. So Simon and I, we met around a fire at a storytelling training, which you were hosting and I was teaching at. And it was late one night over the flickering flames when we got talking about the medical community and why, when and how people tell stories. And Teresa, you and I met through our work at the drive project with the limbless veterans where we where you're now the managing director and i'm one of the lead facilitators and that project which i've talked about on a previous podcast is where the limbless veterans use story to build and transmit resilience so teresa we're gonna we're gonna kick off with you first of all congratulations you retired from the air force and you are you are currently transitioning over to civvy street as managing director at the drive project I am. That's absolutely correct. Yes. And am I right in saying that you knew at the age of three that you wanted to be a nurse? Yes, I did. I actually recall it. I don't recall much at that age, but I actually recall it. And there's a fabulous photo of me and my little brother. He's dressed up as a bus conductor and I'm dressed up as a nurse. And my mother says that from that day... I always stated I wanted to be a nurse. So it made made all my teenage years and their teenage years very easy because I knew what I needed to study and what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. But it's always been a vocation for me and I'm incredibly proud of being a nurse. And although I've done lots of different things, I'm still at the heart a nurse. I love that. Simon, we've chatted about you being a GP or family doctor. We've talked about your love of that and... I'm really curious, what drew you to medicine, whether it was at age three or some other? Was there a pivotal moment where you knew that's what you wanted to do? I was brought up in a medical family. My father was a GP. Absolutely no pressure whatsoever to follow him. In fact, like a lot of doctors, he was anything else. You know, don't do this. There must be all kinds of 101 different things that you could do. Very interested in the natural world, in things biological. And I was going one day with my father. I must have been 13 or 14. He used to come home and pick me up in the car and go off to do house calls. And I'd sit in the car and he'd go in and see the patients. He'd come back. And as we were going around, we'd talk about things. And one day he just turned to me and said, what, what do you think you want to do when you leave school? What do you think you'll do, Simon? And I, I didn't really think about it. He just came out. I want to be a doctor like you. Uh, no conscious thought. It just came. And from there, 
it stuck. It stayed. So, Teresa, I agree with you. From that point on, it made it easy. When there were decisions about which subjects to choose, which exams to do or whatever, which ones are going to get me in, which things are going to get me where I want to be. So I was very grateful to have that. So it was a sudden just click of the fingers almost. Say there's people listening to that who really resonate with that when you just know what it is you want to be doing. Now, Simon, you are based in a GP family practice for your career. And Teresa, you've worked in a lot of different scenarios and you've worked in hospitals and field hospitals. You've worked in recovery. Like, could you give us a little, it's difficult to say a little snapshot, but could you tell us a little bit about these different places that you worked? Uh, yeah, it's quite difficult to say many, but I'll, I'll try and summarize a little. So Being in the military is fabulous because it does give you the challenge of being able to do things differently. And that's the reason why I joined the uh, military, because I wanted to make a difference, um, but I wanted an increased challenge. And I actually wanted to work in the pre-hospital field, which back in the 90s for nurses was actually um, not very common. You were either a paramedic or a doctor. But I've worked, as, as, as Claire said, all over the world, lots of places where girls with blonde hair don't and probably shouldn't go to. But the settings are similar, but very different. In my early days, I deployed a lot as what we call an aeromed liaison officer. So I deployed with the army and would be based at either the airhead of that uh, operation in that country or with the army, the field hospital. And and my role was to facilitate the safe evacuation of those patients back from that operational theatre, that country, back to the UK. um, For those of you that are not medical, you can't just put people who've got a medical condition on an aircraft because altitude can actually cause significant issues and actually kill a patient. So working with a team, that's what we did. But I've also worked in larger teams, so actually at the field hospital, or latterly, like I did in Baghdad, I was the only nurse and I was working with 300 Royal Irish soldiers and headquarters staff in central Baghdad in the green zone in 2005. And in that role, you are the only medic. And, you know, as a nurse, it was huge responsibility. But that's what I joined the military for, because you could be totally autonomous, but you could really look after the whole patient. So I knew every single one of those 300 soldiers, you know, just by looking at their faces, whether they were sad, whether they were down, whether they were stressed, whether they were ill. And it was really, really, really important for me to know that and to make sure they were okay because we didn't have large numbers of replacements should they get sick. So if what you know, if there was a breakout of diarrhea and vomiting, that would significantly hamper the mission that we were doing and what they could do. So I had to get their confidence that they would come to me at any time, you know, night or day to then, you know, support them. And at the time, Baghdad was particularly lethal because of the amount of trauma going on at the time. It was very, very dangerous. So trauma was a massive, massive issue. So we had to all be on our on our, on our top game. And, and then latterly, I've 
deployed in more headquarters roles. I've also deployed, or I went to Iraq where I um, commanded the, it's called a holding facility. So basically we were a tented medical facility between two the runways at Kuwait International Airport. And everybody who got injured needed to come back to our facility so that we could then again safely evacuate them on two aircraft, two dedicated aircraft that came in twice a day. So uh, two aircraft in a 24-hour period. But we weren't a hospital, so if something went wrong, we had to send them back down the line. So they had to be safe when they got to us. And at the whole time, we were in our NBC suits, and it was all, you know, um, there were scuds coming in, and it was quite an interesting time. <laughs> See, this I have to explain, because we've got people from different countries listening. This is the wonderful English power of understatement. <laughs> When Teresa says it was quite an interesting time, you're in a field hospital between two runways with scuds coming in while making sure you're keeping everyone alive. That's your definition of an interesting time. I love it. Thanks, Teresa. And I know there's more in there. We'll come back. It's incredible the kind of pressured situations that you were working in. I know it's a very different scenario, but I'd like a glimpse, uh, Simon, of what what kind of medical situations you found yourself in over the years? What kind of situations you found yourself in? All sorts of things, all kinds of places. Just Teresa, listening to you talking at the time that you were at your base with the skirts coming in, I was visiting a delightful 99-year-old lady, retired school teacher. She was well-read. She was well-spoken. It was one of those wonderful kind of visits that you did because you knew exactly how to behave, and that was impeccably. Uh, you were absolutely on your top game, on your manners. But she was so well-read. She was probably the best and most knowledgeable 99-year-old on the subject of Scud missiles. <laughs> She had read all about them. She knew about them. And she was, she'd have a conversation with you about all of those things. She died just short of her 100th birthday, having had pneumonia and suddenly gone hell. And she would have been thrilled to bits about that because she thought the whole thing was just too much fuss. So that's at one end. The other was the whole gamut of primary care. And I was fortunate. I worked in a busy practice but also we had a community hospital next door, which made it very busy. We were able to have inpatients and also treat people in the minor injuries unit. When I first started, they called it casualty. It wasn't. It was a minor injuries unit. But back in those days, before there were paramedics, the ambulance would bring people in for us to stabilize before they went off to the major hospitals. People would come in and arrive and say, I'm feeling a bit strange at the moment. I've got this crushing central chest pain. I'm not sure if this is okay. And then go all gray and sweaty on it. So although it was a minor injuries unit, there were times when it was less minor. Also, for a good number of years, we were in charge of the maternity unit there as well, uh, about 15, 20 miles from the nearest district general hospital. General practice itself, I have a sort of love of pediatrics. I've enjoyed looking after small children since forever. And somewhat to my surprise, as my career advanced, I found that I was spending more time as well 
looking after people at the end of their lives. And palliative care became increasingly big part of my role. A lot of stressed and worried people came in my direction too. And as Claire was saying, that sort of led me to looking into other ways of dealing with it. That's great. Thank you both for that overview. I want to bring in something that we've all been reading, which is we've been sharing articles back and forth in different books around narrative medicine. And there's a lovely article by Dr. Marcia Day Childress, and she's at Virginia. She runs the medical hour. She's, she directs and produces that. And she wrote this lovely article from Doctor Stories to Doctor Stories and back again, which I feel like is a nod to The Hobbit, personally. She talks about the importance of Doctor Stories, which is a book that was written by Catherine Montgomery back in 1991. And then she talks about the actual stories that doctors are telling these days, if they are telling any. And I just want to read this, which is from the start of the article. Science was key to medical progress, arguably to the neglect of medicine's art. Clinical encounters trended ever more scientific. Diagnosis depended on objective testing, treatment on research-based clinical protocols and wellness on patients achieving or maintaining certain numbers. From mid-century on, doctoring tended to overlook, even screen off, medicine's core uncertainty. Medical practice is a human endeavour, each patient an N of one. With science supreme, the clinical encounters narrative elements had but shadowy status. Anecdote was a derisive term. It's that last bit about anecdote being a derisive term that really struck me because I've been thinking a lot about when people talk about narrative medicine, they often talk about the story of the patient. How does the doctor make meaning of the story of the patient? But when I think about narrative medicine, I think about the story of the nurse, the story of the doctor themselves. And I'm struck by the fact that I come across a lot, which is there seems to be a lot of silence in your worlds, both your worlds, your worlds of general practice and your worlds of hospitals and crisis and working, you know, being deployed. There seems to be a lot of silence in the medical staff. Am I right there? Is it is silence something that happens a lot, do you think, amongst the medical staff? And Teresa, can I can I ask you that first? Yeah, I think you make a really um, interesting observation because we often, well, when we do use stories in medicine, it's often about the patient, but not about ourselves. And I think there is this perception that if you open up about yourself and tell the truth of, of how you're feeling or what you've done, then actually it will potentially reduce your influence or actually people will see you in a different light to what you want to see and I think there's it's a bit like other professions that you know the medical staff are always seen as always knowing best always knowing everything and to actually acknowledge that perhaps you didn't know the right answer and you didn't get it right that time is actually showing a weakness and I think that's is particularly a fault line that goes through medicine. Certainly as a nurse, I can talk about that. And I certainly see that in medicine as well. We always want to make sure, you know, we, you know, all of us in medicine strive to do the best we can for our patients. That's what we do. And we never want, you know, our whole ethos is based on, you know, the, do the patient no harm. 
but patients are human, we're human. So it's at some point in time, there will be errors. And, and the only way that you can improve patient safety and the patient experience is to be honest and to share those times when it doesn't, doesn't go to plan so that, you know, it doesn't happen again. And, and more importantly, people, you know, in different spheres or, or, or below you will actually learn, learn from that and know that it's, it's through learning and being honest that, that's how we improve. I think it's improving, but we've got a very long way to go. Yeah, I love that you say that. It's something Dr. Preston Klein talks about a lot, which is your students and your, you know, in the army, your your cohort, your cadre, they, they watch what you do. And if you don't model that, then they're not going to do it. Simon, what about you in the world of, of doctors? Is there a lot of silence? A lot of silence. I think there's, you talk, again, exactly as you say, you talk about your patients and things that you've seen and whatever, but not about the way that you feel yourself for all those kind of reasons. I hope it's getting better. But back in my day, the training was brutal and your training was being put on the spot, potentially by ridicule if you didn't know it. You were made to squirm in front of your colleagues, in front of the patient on the ward. And so you became very reluctant to come forward and to say things. And I think medicine has a problem with an us and them attitude. That us, being medical teams, are the ones who make people better. Them being the patients are the ones who get sick, who get unwell, who get stressed, worried, anxious. So it's a bit like the old cowboys and Indians, good guys, bad guys, this kind of a thing. And you end up in this team feeling that you actually can't acknowledge these things because these things belong to them and not to us. And there's this collusion, I think, that goes on because I think to an extent, sometimes our patients collude with this as well. And it ends up in a very but a pathological state, really, that we don't acknowledge and we don't talk. I do hope that the current generation of staff coming through are more open than we ever were. But I think there's still, as you say, Teresa, a long way to go. And Teresa, while, while Simon was talking there about ridicule and about the training being brutal, I saw you really nodding. Was it, how was it for you as a nurse coming up? It's interesting because I trained at St. Bartholomew's, which was actually more stricter than actually joining the army, joining the military. I, you know, on our first day, we, and I love St. Bartholomew's Hospital, and, I, and I'm only the nurse because of that training. But on our first day, you know, we had to kneel on the floor and our hens had to touch the floor. If they were too long or too short, we had to go to the seamstress. Our nails had to be a certain length. And again, they got inspected and our hair, you know, had to be underneath this very extravagant uh, hat that we had to learn to make. Certainly in my training and early training, we didn't have that same sort of ridicule that Simon was talking about. But there were examples where we were videoed and then our, our characters and our characteristics were examined. But they weren't very good at that time of doing it. So if your characteristics weren't the norm of whatever it was at the time, they didn't put you back together again afterwards so it did harm uh, a couple of my colleagues because they were quieter or thought differently 
And that wasn't accepted at that time, where, again, I know that is much, much, much improved, where joining the military, in a way, you do your training and you are broken, you know, the various bits are broken down and you reevaluate, but you're put back together into whatever. So when you graduate on that, on that, that amazing day, you are whole, you know your weaknesses, but you know your strengths and you can do things that you think that you never could. Excellent. Yeah, I like that. You're put back together. There's a lot of training in the world that's like that. The care you take with the people you're training. Simon, when we sat around the fire that night, all those years ago, you told me about something that I hadn't been aware of. And I'd I'd love you to share a little bit about it now, which is at one point in your career, you discovered a woman by the name of Rachel, Dr. Rachel Remen. And Indeed. I'd love to know how you discovered her and what that led you to do. It was about 12 or 13 years ago now, coming towards the latter part of my career, quite senior in the practice. And I worked in a group practice, the patients, 15,000 odd patients registered with us who were able to see any member of the team. And so the patients would be self-selecting. And as Claire intimated before, I got increasing numbers of people coming to see me with stress, anxiety, worry, depression. And I was interested in what else one could do. Wasn't very keen on half the medication we had available. And talking therapies you had to wait months and months for. So what else was there? What other ideas and techniques were there out there that would help people? What sort of quick fixes, if you like, while you're waiting? So reading around the subject and going to several courses and things, I was recommended a book. I was recommended a book by Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, who is from the West Coast of America. She's now aged 83, still working. And she wrote a book called Kitchen Table Wisdom. I read the book and it's the first time that I have then written to an author afterwards. I wrote to her saying how much the book had moved me because it's a book of stories. It's a book of stories about medical people and stories about their patients. I wrote to her and I then learned that she had had letters upon letters upon letters from other medical people saying just the same things. And she had wondered a few years previously what would happen if you gave a group of doctors specifically the opportunity to get together and sit and tell each other their stories, to talk about themselves, about their lives in a confidential space, to have people genuinely listen. So you tell your story about your life or you bring a poem or a piece of artwork, but the best of all were the true life stories. And you'd listen and everyone else would listen generously, which meant not interrupting, not comparing yourself, not trying to fix anything and not giving any advice unless you were asked for it. And it wasn't so much the quality of the stories that made the difference. It was the quality of the listening. And then I heard about these meetings. And I thought, oh, I would have loved to have gone to a meeting like that. Wait, wait, why wasn't there something like that? And it occurred to me that really 
if I was going to go to a meeting like that, the only way of doing it was organizing it. So I contacted Dr. Remen's team in San Francisco, and they sent me some guidelines and cutting a very long story short, contacted uh, the local postgraduate education center and some friends, and we ended up running bi-monthly meetings where we sat and told stories and we listened. And the shared humanity and being reminded of the wisdom, kindness, compassion of your colleagues was just extraordinary. There were things that were there and there were so many things that people were just hiding underneath somehow. And they had the opportunity and you realized quite how well-rounded and well-grounded one's colleagues were. And these were called finding meaning in medicine groups. Is that right? That's correct. Finding meaning in medicine. And when I first heard about it, I wasn't sure about the title. I didn't like it very much. And then I came to absolutely love it. And now I think finding meaning in medicine is exactly the thing. I looked at the book before today and I glanced at it. And it's the, one of the very few books that I've underlined things in. I've written comments in margins. And I just looked at the bottom and thinking what you said right at the very beginning, Claire, here, the thing I've written at the bottom there, the things we cannot measure may be ultimately the things that sustain our lives. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. In my world of storytelling, that's ideal, right? You had a dedicated space. It was an anonymous space where these doctors could go. And from what you've told me, they told stories. They shared experiences there they'd never, ever shared publicly. Really difficult experiences about all kinds of things like losing patients, making wrong decisions. And we might go into some of those stories a little bit later. And that's lovely when you have the time. You know, I'm imagining all these mission critical teams listening, going, well, that's grand if you happen to have an afternoon off and you can go down. But, you know, we're living in a very strange time where most of our medical teams are in crisis and everything is moving very swiftly. So, so Teresa, I'm, I'm aware that you are a person who's worked in high speed environments and high crisis environments. And I'm thinking, you said to me the other day, the fact that there's no time is always the excuse. And I was really struck by that. And I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about what happened. I think it was in Iraq. I'm not sure if I've got the location right, but you know, you know the thing I'm talking about with relationship to yeah. time? Yeah. Would you tell us that? Yeah. And I, and I agree that because sometimes what Simon's talking about is so critical, people will find excuses not to do it. And time is always that. My... um time in Kuwait it was during the Iraq war as we were at that holding facility and I had a small squadron of 30-35 people and we had an aircraft coming in at 12 o'clock midday and an aircraft coming in at midnight so and then we had up to uh, you know 70-80 patients or 100 patients between those two time slots and I knew that as, as, as the lead for this, and, and we were in our NBC suits and, you know, lots of other awful stuff and, you know, potential to scuds coming in, et cetera. And every time that happened, we had to go into a shelter and stay until the all clear. So, and after about seven days, they were doing it at nighttime the whole time. So people were really sleep deprived. 
And I really knew that I had to see my team every day. And and I sort of asked them and said, right, Wayne can do it. And everyone will be too busy. And I thought, I, I, I have to see them. I have to be able to look at them. I have to be able to look in their eyes to know whether they're okay. Because my job is to look after them. Because if I don't look after them, then they're not going to look after our patients. So I set, I agreed that we would meet at four o'clock every day. And it meant that the shift coming on at night, because we were doing 12 on, 12 off, coming, uh, you know, going into the night shift, had to get up early. And they were really excellent and all agreed to it. And they could come in whatever they wanted to wear. I didn't care whether they brushed their hair or whatever. So they didn't wear in T-shirts, you know, whatever. Uh, they just had to be there at four o'clock. And we didn't have very much time. So I didn't prevaricate. And I literally went around every single one of them and looked them in the eye. And, and I had a lot of nicknames for them because that sort of made the team much closer. And I would ask them how they were and they would tell me. And, and then we all knew where everybody was. And then when we when we finished, because it was very unusual in the military to actually create a team, which is what we did, and then end because, uh, you know, that, that war finished in June. So we went, deployed in beginning of February and then we came home in June. And I knew that I had to close this team. So I did the same thing because everybody loved their four o'clock because they were noshing on their, their their biscuits and the marshmallows and sweets that everybody had sent them dressed, you know, with no hair being brushed, etc. And I thought we had to close this. So, again, I didn't have hours. But the way we closed it was I gave them a couple of titles of you know what they'd gained most or what they were going to remember most and what they were going to take from this experience going in the, in the future. And they just had to do it in two or three words. And they, I went round using their nicknames like we had. And they all told us and sh- we shared their stories effectively from, from that time. And that became like the collective story. And I think it was really, really important to close that team because coming together every day for nearly four months in some very challenging times was critical to getting through those 24 hours. And everybody knew where everybody was. It was the thing of actually making time. You have to make time to do it. And you have to you know, stand up and say, this is, this is going to happen. I don't care what you're doing. You come together. Uh, and, it, and it certainly uh, worked in, in that arena. But it's having the courage to do that. It's having the courage to stand up when the situation is telling you again and again, there is no time for this and make it even those, those singular moments that you made, allowing the team to connect. And it makes me think about something we're very aware of in storytelling, but it comes into the MCTI podcast quite a bit, which is ritual. Mm-hmm. And I've heard this a lot in the stories you've told me over the last few months, Teresa, you know, the ritual of having a set time and a set process and a set procedure. This is how we're going to do it. And there's something in the human psyche that really settles into ritual. And I've been reading some of the emergency teams in the pandemic because they're they're changing who they're working with all the time, forming these little rituals where they can to lean into, to feel supported by that, by that ritual. And Simon, I'm aware that, you know, as a, as a storyteller now, as well as a uh, former GP, you're very aware of the power of ritual. And there was a ritual that you created for yourself as a way of coping with with the stress of dealing with hospice and dealing with dying patients. Would you mind sharing that with us? The small ritual, actually, I've got one with me at the moment, about a, about a beach pebble. And it's a thing that I've shared with uh, young doctors. I've shared with anyone who'll listen, really. 
I had a patient, and I have permission from her family. She's left us now, but I have permission from her family to share it. She was somebody who I'd known for some time. I'd known her. I'd come across her medically and liked her quite well. And I don't know why she hid her cancer, but she hid her cancer until it had grown and it had grown and it had erupted through her skin and it was breaking down and she'd hidden it from everybody. And it was only when the smell started to become overpowering that she came and sought help and advice from it. Hopeless by that stage. There was no treatment available other than palliation uh, because it was widespread here, there, and everywhere. And so together with the district nursing team, we would go in, that we would strip down the dressings, have a look, see, and look at symptom control during the last days, weeks of her life. And knowing that I was going to go and do this house call, Knowing that it was going to be horrible because this lady was decomposing before your eyes, I followed a, an advice that I'd been given about grounding objects, which is picking up a small stone. I had a little pile of them in my consulting room on a shelf, along with a whole collection of little objects and things. They were all of them of a size that you could hold in your hand. But I put a beach pebble in the pocket of my jacket, and as I was walking up to the house, just lifted it out of my pocket, just closed my hand around it and held that, that pebble, just sort of grounded really because this belonged on the beach and I could be somewhere else just for a moment. And as you walked up to the house, just holding on to that one and then gently putting it back into your pocket, taking a breath, knocking on the door, going in and dealing with whatever that day was going to bring turning around and coming back out after, hand back in the pocket, pick up the beach pebble and just hold it gently in your hand and holding it. And it's a, one of the techniques that I learned from Rachel Remen's work. And she said that she'd encouraged people to actually hold a beach pebble when you knew somebody was unwell, perhaps they were going to go into hospital you would hold the pebble in your hand and put messages into it of love, hope, courage, and then pass it to another family member and another and another. And one after the other, they would imbue this simple stone with all of that meaning. And then the person would take that with them and maybe have it on their bedside table in the hospital and that kind of thing. And so that was where it came from. And the little stone that sat on my consulting room desk used to come on some of the home visits on the ones that I knew that were going to be tough or after a consultation where it had been particularly difficult to just get a stone down off the top there and hold that for two or three seconds, put it back down again and carry on with your, with your work. Yeah, it's very powerful. It's very powerful. It's that thing of ritual that we, we had many more rituals in our past, didn't we, as human beings, and a lot of them have disappeared and it's up to us to, you know, as you were saying earlier, Teresa, about standing up. You know, it's quite difficult inside these big institutions, these big organizations, these big companies that are so driven by tech and by data and by numbers and by successes. And, and of course, in medical, you've got this added pressure of life death, right? This is the biggest thing to carry. To step up in that space and bring a ritual is quite a thing to do, but it's incredibly, incredibly supportive. 
And what I was thinking about earlier when, in the conversation around the idea of ridiculing and getting things right and the fear of getting things wrong, how do you, aside from telling stories, I'm wondering how you, how you mitigate some of that stress around responsibility. And Teresa, I'm struck by, I suppose I'm thinking specifically of a story you told me a while ago around the gold, silver and bronze system, which was something you saw your team was starting to struggle under the weight of those, the, the, those, those decisions they had to make. And I'm just wondering if you talk a little bit about responsibility and decision-making and what, what that led you to do. Yeah, I, I wish now at uh, my ripe age of 56, I had the wisdom I have now to be able to uh, go back uh, and, uh, and use, because uh, I haven't always looked after myself and I haven't always mitigated that for me personally because my the people that um, are under my care, whether they're patients or staff, have always been first to me. So I, yes, I've got lots to learn and I've learned that now, but Back again, it was um, in Q8 during the, the war. We were in this very, as I said before, we were in this holding facility, in a bunch of tents between this runway, two runways. And we sometimes had up to 70, 80 patients, up to 100 patients, you know, twice a day. And some of them were quite severely injured, but all of them were going home or needed to be evacuated for some reason. And I found very early on during the war that sometimes when the patients had actually got onto the aircraft, I had anecdotal stories come back to me that some of them felt that because they weren't or didn't look as badly injured, they didn't get a cup of tea or they didn't get the the care that they thought they needed. And when I discussed this with my team, they said, you know, we've only got a limited amount of resource. We've got up to 100 patients. So therefore, we have to do the most for the most. And I was like, no, that's, that, that can't be right. So in a nutshell, I created three levels of care based on in the, what we call in nursing, all the activities of daily living. So, you know, eating, being able to go to the loo, being pain-free, being able to see the padre, all of those things. That, and I created uh, bronze, silver and gold. And for the first couple of months, we were under bronze. And it meant then, for example, everybody had to be offered a hot cup of tea or coffee. Everybody had to have access to some sort of meal. Remember, these are these weren't uh, from a cafe or or a restaurant or anything. We were in tents and they were, you know, they're boiling the bag things. But everybody had to have access to something if they so they wouldn't be hungry. Everybody had to have somewhere a space where they could lie down with a pillow and a blanket because trust me, that's all we actually had. And then the more sicker patients would have a slightly different uh, level. But it meant for me and for my team that when every single one of those patients was evacuated, every single one of them had had a same level of care. But most importantly, I would tell people at the beginning of each shift or each day what level we were doing in order to take away the burden from them from deciding I've only got this amount of resource. Who do I actually, um, who do I give it to? And my hope, and I haven't actually spoken to them, my hope was that they didn't feel the burden that I'm sure some of our colleagues are feeling at the moment with this moral injury in feeling that they haven't done the best for their patients because they didn't have the resource. That's brilliant, Teresa. Simon, do you want to give me Teresa, last time we spoke on this the other day, I was struck 
that it was a wonderfully generous thing that you did. You recognized that your staff needed to do this and needed to decide what level of care was possible today. And that allowed the staff to not feel guilty because they were only capable of doing bronze. What did you do yourself? Because you're the person at the top who's making that decision. And on that day, we can only do bronze or we can only do silver. We can't hit gold. And so the staff themselves are given that opportunity to say, okay, that's the best we can do today. But having made that very difficult decision at the top, you're in a very lonely place. So what did you do yourself to, to look after yourself? That's a really good question, Simon. And, I, and I've been racking my brains because I don't know actually what did. And this is probably what I wasn't very good at doing until my latter, you know, commander at Headley Court when I knew that I actually had to do something. In the military, it's very hierarchical. And when you're at war, the last thing you want to be doing is showing your, you know, your subordinates that you're afraid or you don't know what to do, because that's the one time when actually sort of storytelling and saying, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm not sure about this does not does not work. So that's going back to that critical, that crisis area when they want confidence, even if you weren't, even if it wasn't necessary, you didn't weren't sure that it was going to be the right thing. I had to appear confident to them so that they could believe in me. I wrote letters home to my mum. So I think that's the answer to your question. And I wrote the bluey. So when you go away in the military, it was sort of pre-mobile phones. And all our mobile phones were taken away anyhow because of security. And we were encouraged to write blueys. And I encouraged my staff to write because none of them had actually ever written letters because they were of the generation where it was all phones. So I remember when the phones got taken away, I had to sort of teach them, you know, here's a pen, here's a bluey. And it'd be really great when you write these to whoever you want to at home. And guess what you're going to get? You know, you'll look forward to these messages from home. So I wrote to my mum, which I think was probably not very fair on her. Uh, and very recently, I was bowled over at that to sort of celebrate my career. She's actually used her diaries and my letters and created a history because I have the most terrible memory. And in them, she's collected every single Louis letter that I wrote. And a lot of the time, as you say, Simon, actually is... I would put how I was feeling in those letters to mm -hmm. her. Uh, and I think that's how I got round that because it, it is a lonely place. It is a lonely place. Uh, and there is a time and place where you have to bring the mask over. But yes, I think that's, that's the answer, actually. I wrote to my mum. <laughs> okay. that's, that's interesting. I, um, the time that I was saying about when I was looking around and casting around for ideas and things that would help people who were stressed. Looking back at it, it was also a time just after one of my colleagues had retired. And he and I had just got on well together. Uh, we didn't see each other all the time or whatever, but not that infrequently towards the end of the day or at the end of the day when you're mopping things up and writing up the notes before you go home, there'd be a knock on my door or I'd be knocking on his door and say, can I, can I just have five minutes and we go in and just talk about stuff? Or what did you think at that practice meeting at lunchtime? What, what was the agenda going on there? And after he left, 
there was a gap, a bit of a vacuum. And I think what I'm coming around to really is that sort of mentoring, co-mentoring if need be, just having somebody or some people who you're able just to not necessarily say how awful it is, maybe to say that was brilliant, wasn't it? but in that safe and secure kind of a place. And actually, if that's just writing it down physically and sending it to your mum, your mum will have to share it with somebody else or just sort of... Somebody <laughs> <laughs> well, it, but it still comes back to sharing the story, right? And this is it's funny you bring that up because this is what you pointed out to me this morning about the article, which is that uh, Marcia Childress, she talks about encouraging the 55-word story, teaching narrative reflection through writing. Mm. I'm such an oral person. I'm always encouraging people to tell the stories, tell the anecdotes and transmit that knowledge because in medical, obviously, the, you know, the knowledge, the detail, the getting the data right is so important. But when you transmit the stories of how you feel, of what you went through, and Simon, some of the stories you've told about in the Finding Meaning in Medicine groups around difficult things like dealing with the suicide of a patient, mm-hmm. you allow the processing to happen. You allow the emotional, the psychological processing, and you allow yourself to make meaning out of the experience because you externalize it. It leaves your head. And all of that ridicule, self-criticism that we all carry around with us, it's free from that because it's it's exposed to outside perception. And she writes, there's a beautiful piece in here that I want to read from this from this article. There's so many different things, but I'll just choose this one. She talks about what medical students learn from narrative writing My students' stories capture memorable moments in their learning and make them available for scrutiny. Their stories represent opportunities to exercise compassion and humanity towards patients and peers, like you were saying, cultivate moral awareness and a vocabulary for moral discourse, interrogate ambiguity and uncertainty and engage in self-care, including reflecting on their own and others' attitudes and actions and realigning their professional and personal lives all practices that novice practitioners will need in order to sustain themselves against the pressures of 21st century clinical work. And you take that, that comment, and this article was written back in 2017, and you apply it to now in 2021, when the pressures of 21st century medical work have been compounded by this incredible conflagration of events. And although there's less time now, there's more urgency now. There's there's less medical people because we're losing people from the teams. It, it seems to me, and I'm not medical, so I, I really want to hear your thoughts on this, but it seems to me that now more than ever, the conversations, the letters, whatever way medical can start externalizing their experiences ha- has to be more relevant now than ever. Do you think? Yes, I do. I think it is the, always, always the difficulty of making and finding time. And I know, Teresa, you were saying that it's an excuse. And yes, it is. But it, whenever trying to get things underway and getting people together is very, very hard because you're running to stand still. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's what you say is so true, Claire. You know, I'm very privileged now because I'm working for the Drive Project, which uses storytelling as a absolute, it's absolutely at the center of recovery and resilience. And one of the things that we've been trying to do, you know, with the NHS over the last 12 months is to try and offer 
a storytelling package to the NHS. But interestingly, even last Friday, when we thought we'd got somewhere, the excuse came back that people are too busy, but actually it's it's just too big at the moment. You know, I spent the whole weekend trying to think, well, how can we change? How can we change, you know, the model that we've thought about to be able to accommodate what's required? But my fear is that that being too busy, even though recovery in the current crisis is absolutely recognised and there's an enormous plan, how are they going to crack that age-old problem of making time? Well, there is an interesting organisation in the States called the Nocturnists, who I've been listening to, and it's a podcast set up by doctors for doctors and nurses, and anybody can send in their story and they can send them in anonymously. And so I think that's one of the ways in which it's happening. I think there's lots of people finding ways to crack the nut. There's a wonderful place up in, in Minneapolis, the Center for the Art of Medicine. Dr. John Halberg and others have set that up. And it's about this this conversation, how art can serve medicine. And here at Mission Critical, we're, we're asking the same questions. I don't think there's any easy answer because these teams are working in such extreme crisis. But I suppose... What I've found is just just by having the conversations with the surgeons I know and the um, physician associates that I know and the nurses I know, they all start to open up and start talking about it. I think that's where it begins, is in these very gentle conversations, like maybe some assisting has never heard of finding meaning in medicine groups, and maybe they'll be able to find one. Or, you know, a couple of the books I want to mention that I've been tapping into, one is Narrative Medicine by Rita Sharon and I've got a new one which I'm quite excited about. I Shall Not Hate by Iseldon Abolesh. I've got Do No Harm by Henry Marsh and Atul Gawande's mm-hmm. wonderful book, Being Mortal, The Language of Kindness by, by a nurse uh, last name Watkin. And so I'm reading it, all these books to give me a glimpse of what it's like to be in medical and what it's like for them because I don't I don't know and that's that's my ignorance. And I'm so I'm hoping that as they start to emerge from this, that they will look for partners to help them with that. Because over here in the UK, I don't know how it is elsewhere, but we're applauding them on the streets and we're calling them heroes, which I think is a little bit dangerous. As a storyteller, I think if you call anyone a hero, there's a great bit of danger in that word because it, as you said the other day, Simon, that hero is a word by which you can put someone on a pedestal. And when you're on a pedestal, there's a quite a distance for you to fall. Absolutely. Yes, there's only one direction to go from the top of a pedestal. And if you're the knight on shining armor, you don't want to show any any chinks in your armor at all, if I'm allowed to use that word anymore now and thinking about it. But if you're you're only a knight in shining armor while you're still on your horse and you've still got your armor on, as soon as you put down your sword and your shield and take your helmet off, you're no longer that knight. So I think, yeah, the hero language is... Um, is, is dangerous stuff. Mm. Well, we're, we're coming to the end of our conversation and I'm just wondering if you have any any thoughts for if you were starting in medicine now, if you were starting as a nurse or starting as a doctor, I'm curious what one piece of advice you might give someone starting out in this career. If you were to start all over again, what, what would you like to have known? I think I've got two, if I may. So the first one is to always be true to yourself always be true to yourself and and believe believe in, in yourself 
And the second one is, and I've taught my nurses this throughout in all, all, all the areas that I've worked, is that, you know, in the medical world, always make sure that patients are central to your decision making because it doesn't matter how wrong things go. If you can say and put your hands on your heart and say, I put my patient at that centre of the decision-making with them because they're the ones who should be part of that decision-making process, it went wrong because of A, B, C, D and E. It doesn't matter because you did it. And I think what I've found over the last sort of decade, as I've got more senior, you go to a lot of meetings, there's a lot of policies and we forget that we're about patients you know, even in the military, yes, we have very defined missions, but as a medic, as a nurse, as a doctor, it should be about our patients. And I think if we always put our patients central to any of our decision making, then actually you can't go wrong. Thanks, Teresa. Yeah. Simon. All of that, definitely, but also to remember your humanity. I think it's easy, and particularly if people start putting you on a pedestal, to think that you're really super special. It's reminding yourself that, no, you're human. We're all human. We all hurt. We all grieve. And remembering that when you get to know your patients and like your patients, when they become unwell and they die, you need to say goodbye to them. It's not realistic to think that you can then just roll your sleeves up and go on with the next job or whatever. You do need to remember your humanity and to grieve when necessary, to rejoice when you can. And the having a mentor is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. Ah, oh, that's lovely. Really lovely advice. Thank you both. And I really appreciate your generosity of sharing your experiences and challenges that you faced along the road. I mentioned a few books there and what I'll do is I'll make a, a list. We'll, we'll add that onto the podcast and any recommendations you have for books or articles you want, you think people would enjoy, we'll add that to our reading list at the end. But just to say a huge thank you to you both for coming in today and joining us on the Mission Critical Teamcast. Thank you very much, Claire. Lovely to ask you. Thank you very much. Thank you.